we uh, sort of followed his evolution, followed his development from when he was introduced as an Ishii in the fortress of Shushan. Uh, we talked about his affiliation with the family of King Saul from centuries to centuries earlier. Um, and we talked a lot about his uh, location at the gate, the Sha'ar, uh, how at the beginning at least, uh, in chapter 2, uh, he epitomizes someone who is at the cost of being on the inside, but at the same time at the cost of being on the outside, uh, really tries to straddle that, straddle that border. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, we saw that he shows his insider, insider identity, his loyalty to the royal, uh, royal bureaucracy, not only by working for them, but by saving the life of the king, uh, which is the ultimate uh, act of loyalty. Uh, and yet, in chapter 4, when he discovers what, what Haman has, uh, has done, uh, he sheds the insider status or his aspirations to insider status altogether. And he puts on, he takes off his whatever clothes he was wearing, puts on sackcloth uh, and ashes. And what's explicitly told is that means he can no longer, no longer go into the gate. He's now thrown in his lot with those outside the gate, uh, barred himself voluntarily from, from entering inside. We then backtracked a little bit and went to Esther. And that's what we'll pick up with uh, this evening. Um, we, what we did talk about at the, end of, uh, at the end of the week last week was Esther's name. Uh, we observed that she was introduced as Hadassah, the daughter of Abichayel, two good Jewish Hebrew names. Uh, but those are names that are not used for the rest of the book. For the rest of the book, she's Esther, a uh, Persian name, maybe a Babylonian name, a Thara name. Um, and not only Esther, but most of the time Esther Hamalka. And that's something that we'll see uh, in action in a, in a few minutes. Uh, and we talked about the fact that 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 name of hers, her actual Jewish Hebrew name, which is Shed, uh, may be reflective of her identity, her Jewish identity, which is not fronted at all in the book. Uh, it's something that, that fades, and that raises one of the key questions, which is what we'll uh, try to explore in just a couple minutes, um, which I think the book explores, uh, which is whether she's actually gotten rid of that part of her identity, or whether she's just quieted it down, whether she's just covered it up with some other segments some other elements of her identity and sort of hidden her Jewish identity, but it's there, perhaps, underneath. Um, I think we'll say that the book actually raises that question almost, almost explicitly. But before we get to that, I want to start with chapter 2 again, uh, where Esther is actually the main character. After Mordechai is introduced in Tarek Beth Pasukei, um, we're then told that he was raising this girl, Hadassah, who's Esther, who's a beautiful girl. She was an orphan. And... At uh, the top of page 1788, uh, it turns out that the, uh, that the whole reason we're hearing about Mordecai at this point is because of Esther. We actually, Mordecai has no role to play in chapter 2, but Esther, of course, does, because what we heard at the beginning of chapter 2 was that all of the beautiful virgins in the kingdom were going to be taken to the palace. And Esther certainly qualifies. So at the top of page 1788, um, we get into... Esther's role in this in this big imperial drama. What we've had in Parabellum, chapter one, was a story about the empire, a story about the king and big national uh, politics. Um, although Vashti somehow plays a role in that. Then we zoomed in on one person, on Mordecai, and now with Esther, we see how this one person's biography, how this one person's life, actually becomes part of the big national story, the story of the empire as a whole. Um, the one thing that many many readers have observed about Esther, the character in Tarifet, uh, is that she's, she's totally passive in the entire, in the entire story, the entire parrot. 
Um, so if we look at the top of page 1788, starting with uh, Um when the king's order was proclaimed, and the girls were collected to the fortress of Shushan, Esther Esther too was taken into the king's palace. She was taken. Now, of course, uh, we would want to know, well, what did she think about this? What was her role here? Did she get herself dressed up before she went? Did she step outside? Did she send a letter and say, I'm here as well, you should uh, come to my address, you should know I exist. Uh, did anyone even ask her? Uh, the basic answer from the book's perspective has to be uh, that actually the narrator doesn't care. Now, I don't really mean that the narrator doesn't care, but rather that the narrative doesn't care. And the narrator has constructed a narrative that doesn't care. It doesn't matter what Esther herself thought, it doesn't matter what role she played. The bottom line is, she was taken. What could she have done? Uh, as far as the story is concerned, there's nothing she could have. She's irrelevant at this point as an agent. She has no, no role to play here other than to be taken. I want to just ask, according to your take, who wrote the book of Esther? Uh, well, you said the narrator. And of course, in the end, you think that... Yeah, no, his name was Bob. And Esther was. <laughs> his name was Bob. Um, he worked oh, in the... No, I'm saying we don't know really. We don't know. I mean, I, you know, we could venture a guess as to when and where. But uh, we have no way of... What year was it? What year is it set or what year is it written? What year is it set? It's, well, Achimshverosh is Xerxes, so we know his, his years you know, in, in detail. So he rules from 485 to 465 BCE. So now we're talking about the uh, seventh year of his reign, so we're in 478 BCE, oh. is when Esther is uh, called to the king. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Did I get there? Seventh year? I think we're right. We're going to see that, I think. Anyway. Um, yeah, the seventh year of his reign, it says in Pasuk uh, Tetzai in the 16th. Um, so that's when it's set. It's written probably a few decades later, but it's hard to be more specific than that. Uh, okay, so Esther is taken. And again, that's a, it's a really important. So she's introduced, she's introduced as what? She's not even introduced as her own character. She's introduced as the girl who's being raised by Mordecai, who was introduced. Mm-hmm. She's being raised by Mordecai. She's taken. That's what we're told about, about Esther. Now, once she's taken, she has this remarkable, uh, remarkable charm. Uh, the girl pleased him, him being Hegai here, the guardian of the women. And he did anything she wanted. He gave her seven, seven maidens. He treated her with special kindness. And Esther... Esther didn't reveal her Am. And Am is a word we're going to come back to in a few, a few minutes. Didn't reveal her people and her origins. Because what? Why didn't she? At the end of, uh, at the end of verse 10? Because Mordechai told her not to. So, if you ask her why is she not revealing her people? Someone told her not to. Uh, does, does she have a, a developed thought about why it is that it's best to keep her identity secret, again, we don't even know. Uh, Mordechai apparently has some thought, um, but uh, Esther is, again, just obeying orders. She's doing what she's told. Uh, as, a, as a somewhat as a side point, why does Mordechai tell her not to keep her, to keep her identity secret? Why does Mordechai tell her not to reveal her people? The, the book actually is, is sort of mysterious about that. Uh, why is it not good to say who she's, where she's from? To say that she's presumably, uh, I'm a Jew from the house of, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. 
What's wrong with, with saying that? The book never quite makes it clear. Um, but remember that Mordechai himself, at this point in the story, seems to be not flaunting his, uh, his Jewish identity. He's at the gate. He's in the royal bureaucracy. And we talked last time about the fact that his own Jewish identity might not have been all that public. And so you don't have to suspect any sort of uh, deep anti-Semitic plot that they're trying to avoid by, by covering up her Jewish identity. It might just be that this reflects Mordecai's basic attitude towards navigating life as a diaspora Jew, which is, don't make a big deal about the fact that you're a Jew. Unless you really, really need to, just, just be a Persian. And that seems to work better. If something comes up, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll have to revisit this. But right now, just don't talk about it. Seems to, seems to work well because she doesn't talk about anything. No, I was, I was just thinking along those same lines that maybe Mordechai thought that maybe in the future it would become necessary to reveal that she was Jewish to help out the people, you know, to help out her people. Yeah. But right now she could just blend in. Yeah, I mean, you, you, look, you and you know, all of us have the problem of uh, what, uh, what someone I know called the problem of the omniscient reader. Uh, we always talk about the omniscient narrator, but in a lot of stories, especially biblical stories, we have the problem of knowing the end of the story as we start the beginning. Right? So you have to ask, you know, how likely is it that Mordecai suspected that there would be a genocidal plot against his people that Esther might be able to save them from? So it turns out to actually be, you know, in, in hindsight, it turns out to be very likely. But, um, but when she's called to be the queen, when she's called to the palace, how likely is that that that's sort of foremost on his mind? Like, what if it's a genocidal plot? Uh, there's never been one, so... so not maybe even genocidal, but maybe that being that she's in the good grace of the king, the king... Oh, it certainly could help. 100%. Right. 100%. Anything, it doesn't matter. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and I think, it, you know, so a, lo- a more toned-down version is exactly that. Mordecai just says, look, it's best not to, not to talk so much about it. Exactly. Now. We'll see how things turn out. Exactly. All right. Um, now, just to complete the, uh, the theme of her passivity here... Um, sorry? Right. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, so now in, in uh, the next paragraph, uh, we're told sort of background knowledge that when each girl's turn came to go to the king, uh, they would get uh, 12 months of this beauty treatment. Uh, whatever they asked for would be given to them. Uh, and the ritual was they would go in the evening, leave in the morning, and then never return unless the king called them by name. So in Tetvav, in verse 15, so when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, what did she ask for? Nothing. 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 Except for what Hegai recommended. And this is, a, this is an interesting, uh, interesting little detail. So on the one hand, and you know, I think first and foremost, let's emphasize she asked for nothing. And that certainly sort of completes, fills out the picture of her being totally and abjectly passive. She does absolutely nothing. She takes no initiative. On the other hand, if you prove a little bit and say, like, well, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? You know, what's behind the passivity in this particular case? Why would she ask for nothing? So there's a bunch of different ways of reading that. What comes to mind? Why would she ask for nothing? She could be really humble. She could be really humble. Maybe she just doesn't want to ask. I don't need anything special. Uh, that might actually reflect a lot of arrogance, but I don't, I don't need anything, you know, I don't need to dress up, I don't know, she feels like she's not going to win anyway, I don't know, right, so I, just, I don't need to make a big deal about this, maybe she doesn't want to win, maybe she's trying not to impress, she's easy to please, I was going to say she doesn't want to be queen, maybe she doesn't want to be queen, right, uh, what, 
Yes, there is a, a pretty much polar opposite way of reading it. I mean, you could read it that she waits for the guy's recommendations because right. he knows what the king likes. Yeah, so she waits exactly. For the so maybe she's actually a lot shrewder than we're thinking. She doesn't ask for anything means. What she doesn't say is, well, my favorite perfume is whatever. Uh, you know, so, so I need to have that perfume. Why doesn't she do that? Because she realizes that it doesn't matter what her favorite perfume is. Right? What actually matters? The king's favorite perfume. Who knows what the king's favorite perfume is? Well, the guy in charge of the harem. Uh, who knows better what you know what the king wants? So maybe it's hard to know. But maybe you actually should read it exactly the opposite. Not that she's trying to avoid it, but that she's really smart. She's you know the kind of person who knows just when to hold back her own opinions because she knows that what really matters for her advancement is not her own opinion, but the person she's trying to impress. Uh, it's hard to say. That's it. And modern, even modern commentators have read that in uh, in different directions. But. Uh, you know, clearly she's being passive, but whether that means she's being unambitious or ambitious is actually is actually hard to uh, hard to decide. Uh, all right, and then she's taken again into the palace uh, and sort of gets a little dramatic, which tells us that something important has happened. Tells us exactly what date this was, um, which presumably sort of tips us off that this is momentous. Tenth month, month of Tevet seventh year of his reign. And indeed, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. When she won his grace and favor more than all the virgins. So, she becomes, uh, she becomes queen. Okay. Wonderful. Um, again, we all knew that because we are omniscient readers, but, uh, but it's actually a pretty important part of the story. Um, chapter 3, again, is not about Esther and Mordecai. It's about Haman and his, uh, and his plot, uh, except for the fact that Mordecai um, doesn't bow down and so instigates it. Uh, but when we turn to chapter 4, uh, Esther comes back to the story. Here Esther comes to the story explicitly in dialogue with Mordecai. So last time we looked at chapter 4 um, in order to see what it reveals about Mordecai. Now let's start to paradigm to see what we can see about Esther. So the first thing to emphasize is that in the, in the course of the intervening Perek, the Perek Gimel, turns out that five years have elapsed. We're now in the 12th year of Akashirah's reign. a lot of time. Uh, she's been the queen of Persia for five years. Uh, she's been away from Mordecai for five years. She's been dressed as a, as a Persian, acting as a Persian, living with a Persian. Uh, and uh, in general, we have no reason to think, doesn't mean it didn't happen, we have no reason to think that she has done anything Jewish in the last five years. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. We'll come back to that in, uh, in future weeks. But, uh, but this book spends zero lines, zero words, saying that she did anything. Uh, of a Jewish nature in those intervening five years. So a long time has passed, and if we're paying attention to, to the dynamics of the story, if we're thinking about her character as it's developed, uh, I think the, we have to be wondering to what extent she feels connected at all anymore. Uh, we've just read that there's a plot to kill the Jews. We know that Mordecai is reacting dramatically, almost violently to that plot, but Esther is physically in the palace, and our question has to be, where is she emotionally? Is she feeling the pain of the people outside? Does she even know what's happening outside? Does she care what's happening outside? Or, has she, or, or would she sort of say with, uh, with a sigh, like, oh yeah, those are people I used to like. I, I, they actually brought me up. There's some nostalgia, but uh, I've moved on. Uh, you know, I don't want to exaggerate the extent of her uh, potential uh, distance, but, uh, but the question of to what extent she's still connected has to be a question on our mind as we enter the end of the story. So in fact, Mordecai comes to the palace, uh, and we, we already know Mordecai can't go into the palace. 
But uh, as we discussed last time, he seems to be seems to be choreographing his activities in order to provoke a response. He goes to the palace gate. Why is he going to the palace gate? There's no spontaneous act of putting on ashes and walking to the palace gate. Um, so what's, what's he doing there? Well, the best guess is that what actually turns out to happen is what he had hoped would happen. Esther gets a message that your uh, acquaintance, family member, Mordechai, is unclear exactly how many details people know about their connection. Um, but uh, she's told that Mordechai is out there and uh, doing all sorts of weird things. Okay? So what did Esther do in, uh, in Pasuk Dalit in verse 4? So I wonder that also, because someone mentioned last time that you know, if Esther's identity is secret, but Mordecai is not secretly a Jew, then, you know, right. and people know that they're related, yeah, then why is everyone so obtuse to not figure this out? Right. Um, so that would be, that would be nice. It's, it's totally not impossible. Um, the, uh, the, the question that I think really is about your second one, when you, she secretly stands close. So at this point she has intermediaries, she's sending Hataf. Is it, could it be a secret? Maybe yes, maybe you're right. Maybe the fact that she called Hatak, maybe he was some sort of, uh, you know, her confidant and he carried out all of her secret missions. And I don't know, you, you might be right. Maybe, maybe that's true. And that would, uh, that would certainly clear up that, that other issue. Yeah, she, no, he clearly is her servant. Um, you know, maybe in other occasions she had sent him uh, undercover to like assassinate rival queens or something. And this time he was like, just bring clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so much easier. Um, but uh, but in any event, she does find out, and they, they, they start to right. She sends clothes. Um, that's that's the first thing to start with. You're sending clothes. What's what's the purpose of sending clothes? Again, there's different ways of reading this, and it's hard to know what to say. But, but what do you? What's your impression? She hears that Mordechai is outside the gate wearing sackcloth. So what does she do? She says, "Hata, go bring clothes." So what's What's the meaning of that? What does that say? Or is it if people know their connection, maybe embarrassing her. Maybe embarrassing okay. I mean, in other words, yeah, you're damaging my reputation. So big try, like act like a mensch, you know. Um, I mean, if, if that's true, then what would you say about her? What insight would that give us into where she stands or her character right now? She's still right. Yeah, I mean, what didn't she do? What seems like the natural thing to do? Yeah, I mean, if that's the way you read it, then the, the obvious missing action is to say to Mordecai, why are you wearing sackcloth? Right? Uh, if she doesn't do that, all she does is say, change, you're embarrassing me, um, then something is, there's, there's, there's a real emotional barrier here. That she's not immediately responding with concern, and instead responding with only her self-concern, uh, self right? So if that's the way we read it, that certainly tells us something important about her relationship, emotional relationship with Mordecai right now. I think two things are going on. The, the pasuk seems to be specific. The clothing was sent, as you, as you said, I think. It was a scene in front of the palace. Her her narrow and her sorry, Seha, yeah. told her about it. 
So she had to give the man some clothes. Right. And then the second thing is that she sent Hatan on a secret mission, as you put it, with that Mazda, you know, to know exactly what Mazda right, right. Mazda, what is going on, have a conversation with him and find out. So yeah, you're right. So I apologize. She, she didn't send the clothes with Hatan. Good point. That's a good point. Yeah, in the story, Loki Bell is at the end of Puzzle Dallas. But she sent Hatan anyway to find out what's going on. But nobody knew that they're related and no one's getting embarrassed. Yeah, nice. Right. Right, I think that's a good point. What did she say? Yeah, one second. So I think that's a good So when he says a couple of things. So first of all, at the end of chapter two, when Mordecai discovers the plot to kill the king, he actually does somehow get the information to Esther directly. Whatever the medium, uh, whether that means he just knocked on the door and said, I need to talk to you, uh, or it means he had some way of getting information to her, but he was able to communicate with her. Now that, of course, is five years ago. Uh, and, more importantly, what Wendy said in the second point is uh, he had access to the palace then, or at least potentially had access to the palace. Now, he's barred himself from the palace. So the other way of reading the clothes gesture is not, you're embarrassing me, or you're making a scene that's really bad for you and me and anyone else, but, but much more pragmatic. Look, there's obviously something going on, I want to help you, we need to talk clearly, but how are we supposed to talk if you can't get past the palace gate, because you're wearing sackcloth, and I'm stuck in here because I'm a queen, Put on clothes, be a, be a member of the bureaucracy again, function, come inside, and we'll, whatever our means of communication is, then we can, then we can talk. Again, there's, there seems to be two different ways of reading it, and it makes a pretty big difference in terms of how we understand her relationship here. I'm inclined towards that second way, but it's, uh, it's, there have been you know, lots of people who read it the first way, and it's hard to prove. No, I have a different take completely. I feel like usually Sackcloth is um, reminiscent of somebody being in a veilist. Sure. You know, being in mourning, which sure he was more of was in mourning because it was a father of Haman. But here, maybe Esther is registering with Esther. Maybe now I'm Jewish. The king doesn't know yet that I'm Jewish, but maybe I can help my people. So she's saying to Mordecai, in essence, remove your sackcloth, put on different, like shivers over. Now we're gonna, we have to get, well, put okay. our heads together to plan. So that's great. That's Jews. great. So let's put it on hold for for one minute, and that's exactly but yes, what we'll see. I think so. Yeah. Um, okay, so what does Mordechai actually ask Esther? Once they do get a communication, right, they open a line of communication. What does Mordechai say to Esther? What does he actually ask her to do? Uh, verse eight. Right, he sends the tells her about tells her tells her what happened, right? Which certainly implies that she really didn't know, or at least Mordechai thinks she didn't know. Uh, he seems to, by the way, know a lot. Right? He doesn't just know about the decree. What else does he know in verse 7? This is a, this right. a parenthesis. Um, he knows the whole story when Haman offered money to Ahasuerus. That's presumably secret information. That's, uh, that's a private conversation between Haman and the king. Which again, you know, we don't know what Mordecai's job was, but if he was like an intelligence chief, maybe he knows exactly what was going on. But that's just a parenthesis. 
more importantly, what does he say to Esther? He says, look, here's what Haman just decreed, and tells her, the top of page 1792, not just tells her, what's what Tzavotalea? Commands her to do what? To go into the king and to plead with him and to request from the king for her people. That's an important line, to request from the king for her people. Uh, Mordechai takes it for granted that her people are who? The Jews. The Jews. And what's Mordecai asking Esther to do? Chapter 2, he said, don't say who you are. What's he saying now? Now is the time. Now is the time, right? Dramatic reversal. Go in as a Jew. To to plead, get down on the floor, beg for mercy. Uh, Totally not acting like a queen. Acting like a Jew who's about to be killed, begging for your life. And what does does Esther say? In uh, verse 11... Okay, that's, oh, that's a, a short paraphrase, that's true. Uh, well, she says a whole long, long paragraph about why she can't. Let's look, let's look at the beginning carefully. All the king's courtiers, call of the Hamelah, the Am Medinot Hamelah Yodim, Asher Kul Ishvi, Shah, Asher Hamelah, any person, any man or woman who goes into the king, to the inner courtyard, who's not called, there's only one law for him, which is put to death. And then she... Interestingly, also includes the exception to that law, um, which might already be sort of opening the door. Like there is a there is one way, there is one way. But okay, um, but I have not been called to go into the king for thirty days. Now she used the word am, the word people, the same word that he used. But when Mordechai used the word am, who was the people that he assumed Esther would associate with? As the Jews. When Esther uses the am, what people does she? associate with? Persians. Persians. All the people know. Who's the Am? Who's the relevant people? Persians. Who's our loyalty to? Our Am. You're you're part of my Am, Mordecai. Who's our loyalty to? First and foremost, whose rule do we have to obey according to verse 12? The king, who happens to be my husband. Right? So you're you're telling me I I should go break the law of the Persians when I am a Persian, you are a Persian, the Persian king, the law incarnate, happens to be my husband of five years. It's not like I just walked in here last week. I've been married for five years. And you're telling me that I should throw that all out the window and go plead with him because of the people? That's not to say that she doesn't care, but she's not willing to just throw it all out like that. It's exactly what Mordecai did, though, right? Mordecai said, he's been walking this fine line his whole life, he said, throw it all off, sackcloth. Can't go into the palace anymore. He says, Esther, do the same. Now's the time. Go in. Reveal your identities. Throw yourself down on the floor. She said, no, wait. That's not, that's not who I am. I'm a Persian. There's a law to be respected. I'm not going to give up my loyalty to the Persians. Now, it turns out, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to help the Jews. But it does mean I'm going to try to help the Jews without giving up on being loyal to the Persians as well. And this becomes a much more raw uh, process than Mordecai. Mordecai was dramatic. It was emphatic. Threw it all off and said, I'm with the Jews, I'm not with the Persians anymore. I said, I'm not following that path. Even though Mordecai commanded her. Now, what happened in the past in chapter 2 when Mordecai commanded her stuff? What did she do? She listened. She listened. She didn't do stuff because Mordecai commanded her. Now Mordecai commands her and she says, no, no. In fact, who's the subject of the word to command in verse 10? 
Who commands? If you're reading in English, you're not going to see it. It's a reiteration of three. What? Esther. Esther. Exactly. Esther calls Hata and commands him to go to Mordechai. And at the very, very end, look at verse 17 quickly, the end of the chapter. So Mordechai went about the city and did just as Esther commanded him. Wow. This is quite the reversal. So if we're wondering, back in chapter 2, is Esther just by nature passive because, you know, she just doesn't have a, a, a sort of bone in her body? Or is she just sort of playing her cards quietly and waiting for the time to, to show her real courage? Well, here you see, uh, now the time comes, she knows exactly what to do. She's not, she's not someone who's uh, incapable of acting, or at least when the time came, she was not incapable of acting. She rises to, to the challenge of being the commander. doesn't just take commands anymore. So, first of all, to take just the last thing you said, the gender issue is a, is a really key issue. Uh, and we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, that's not accidental. I think you're certainly right that the, the gender issue is, is very conscious and a very important part of the, themes that are being, the identity themes that are being developed there. Um, the first part, so I, I didn't suggest that Mordecai was an intelligent agent for the Jews, but maybe for the Persians, as a sort of um, analogy, like I, I like the, the categories that you're using. Um, you know, I don't know how compelling it is that they actually plotted this from years ago. That goes back to the question of whether anyone really thought there would be such a, a problem um, you know, a decade earlier. But, uh, but, I, but certainly, I think that, you know, as a way of understanding the, the relationship, I think that's exactly, exactly what's happening. Mordecai has one perspective. That just says, I don't think you really understand how things are going to work here. If I do that, I'm going to blow my cover, so to speak and probably not accomplish what it is that I want to accomplish. So she comes up with a different plan that we'll turn to in, in just a second. Uh, no, I didn't agree with that. Okay. Um, Alright, so Esther does come up with this other plan. Um, she says, which she doesn't reveal in chapter 4. She says, uh, everyone, go, everyone go fast for me. Uh, I'm going to fast as well. Right, in chapter, uh, in verse 16, sorry. Uh, go assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan, fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Which raises an interesting question of whether she sees herself as part of that group or she's sort of uh, solidarity with that group. But, okay. Then I shall go to the king, though it's contrary to the law. The kasher avadati avadati. She perishes, she perishes. Okay. Now let's turn to chapter 5. Because here we see uh, the narrator does a, the author does a, a brilliant job um, with some of the words just in the first few verses here of really painting a, an intricate picture of a, of a really complex and raw uh, identity dance. I just wanted to ask about Mordecai's, um, like, I guess, very well-known statement about how um, that it is about her identity, that, that, uh, she, that she won't be able to hide it, like, yeah. if all the Jews are killed, that she, no matter how she thinks of herself as a Persian, she's still going to be identified as a Jew, is that... Yeah, it's true. That's, I've lost over because I don't have anything good to say about it, but uh, you're certainly right. It's, Mordechai actually does say, you will be, uh, you will perish. Um, 
But uh, the argument in that in 14 is so odd um, that it's hard to see how you're supposed to convince anyone. Right. But it does it, or do, do you so think that's a good question. Plan So that's a really good already. question. Uh, that's a very good question. It's, um, you know, his argument is if you, if you stay silent, then we'll be saved anyway, right? Which, of course, is a lousy argument for trying to get her to act, because so what, I should risk my life, and you're going to be saved anyway? I don't, I don't see the point. <laughs> um, and, uh, but you will die. Say, so what? Wait, if I don't do anything, I will die, and you'll be saved? So obviously, you know, there, there's something... Uh, odd about the argument, which doesn't mean it's, it's not a solvable problem, but uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, line there. So I think you're certainly right, though, that at minimum, though, he does, he does say something about how you're going to perish uh, if, this, if this plot is not, uh, right. not abolished. Uh, so that's true. But uh, other than that, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to gloss over it. It's, it's the kind of anti-assimilation argument, because he's saying, you know, we might be saved, but if you keep your mouth shut, you're not going to be a Jew anymore. You're just going to vanish and be assimilated into... Ah, so that's an interesting possibility. You're saying when it says, He doesn't mean you'll die. He means you'll cease to exist as part of the Jewish people. Right. Which is an interesting, uh, interesting possibility. Um, again, I'm not going to pursue it now. But it's also, you know, who's Beit Aviv? She doesn't have any family except for Mordechai. Um, so there's a... That, that, that line seems to be a, a really, for other purposes, maybe very, very important. But for now, I'm just going to put it aside. I, I think in the uh, conflicting sabotage between Esther and Mordechai, because okay. first Esther commands uh, a talk on Mordechai to say Moshon, and Mordechai is commanding Esther to do what she ends up doing, but Esther really is having the final word. Esther is, is, uh, is Esther she, the, re- the reiteration, as you pointed out, in verse 10, and then and even though it looks like you know, she's listening to one of the like threatening her. No. As you pointed out, verse 17, he's doing everything I should to the yeah. of Esther. Esther is following his um, his plan, but it's not uh, not it's not because it's his instruction. Wait, so let's be sure about that. Queen. She's not even following she's his plan. Uh, we're going to come to this. Let's look at what she actually does in a second. But he had a very specific plan, right? His plan was, go plead. That's actually not what she does. She does something different. She does come. But, uh, but there's something different that she does. And she seems to have a different idea of how to go about accomplishing something. So I'm just thinking, maybe she's saying to herself, look, I listened to you before. You said, don't tell my place of birth. Don't tell your name. Now you listen to me. Like, I, I'm an insider now. Before mm-hmm. I was on the outside, now I'm an insider. I'm yeah. the queen. So listen to what I have to say. Absolutely. Maybe I have a better approach to you know, get the yeah. Right. Yeah, and she's, yeah. she's learned her lesson well from him, right? Yeah, he's right. always. So now you want me to... Change yeah. my way all the time. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, it's a question. I saw one time I saw it in front of the Navy. Grew up. That's a lot. It's a rhetorical question, which is solid issue. About. Do you really? What do you think? Right. Uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of jokes about how you can turn any statement into a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Maybe. Yeah. All right. But let's uh, let's turn to chapter five because that's really I think is uh, is the crux of the issue here. Okay. So. Okay. Vatilbash Esther Malchut. Now, what did Mordechai put on when he decided to change his identity and react? What did he put on? Sackcloth. What did Esther put on? Royalty. Uh, literally royalty, presumably royal clothes. Uh, but she certainly dons royalty. She actually dresses like, not like a queen who's in her own quarters, she dresses like a queen who's about to go out in public. 
He dresses like a queen. She stands in the courtyard of the inner palace, or the inner courtyard of the palace, sorry, facing the king's palace. The king is sitting on his throne in the palace, in the throne room, facing the opening. So, has she gone in? Has she not gone in? Where is she right now? On the threshold. She's on the threshold. She's facing going in. She has not yet gone in. Well, she's dressed as, what is she dressed as though? Someone who should be in or should not be in? Absolutely. She's dressed as someone who belongs inside. She has not actually taken that last step yet. Um, but there's, I, I think there's certainly a, a, an ironic reversal here. Vashi, of course, is no longer queen. What was her sin? What was her crime? She didn't, she didn't come when she was called. So what's Esther about to do? She's about to come when she's not called. So there's certainly a, a reversal here. Uh, and of course, from Vashti, Esther presumably learned, uh, or at least the narrator you know, wants us to use it as a foil, that with this king, you, you really can't step too far out on your own. Uh, if the king says something and you cross it, the, the results might be totally irrational, but you might lose your job uh, in an instant. So Esther certainly knows that, which is why you know, we're all, this is the point where we're, uh, you know, I guess in theory we're on edge. Um, what's going to happen when she actually breaks the law? Again, we have the problem of we know the end of the story, but we should be on edge at this point. Um, what happens? She's sitting there, she's standing there facing the king. And what does the king see? So what does the king see? He doesn't see what, he had, what Mordecai had wanted the king to see, sorry. In Mordecai's plan, what had he wanted the king to see? That she's in distress. Exactly. A poor girl who needs him to save her. Right? What does he actually see? Queen Esther. Standing regally at the doorway. Right? Literally. And what is he, what's his response? Not pity, not mercy. Respect, love. She found favor in his eyes. He said, come in. Come in. What does it mean, come in? It means what Esther has been working up to is if I'm going to be of help here, where am I going to be of help from? The king. From being as inside as possible. She went to the threshold. The king said, come in. So that's exactly what I need. I need that invitation. Now I can come in. Now from in here, she hopes, she can actually do something useful. Mordecai has taken a very different tack here. Right? Mordecai said, I'm going to not be allowed to come in. I'm going to stay on the outside and hope by, by agitating at the outside, I'll be able to affect things on the inside. Esther said, Okay, good for you, or maybe not good for you, but whatever, that's what you did. My task can be the opposite. Not only am I not going to cast myself as an outsider, I'm going to try to be as insider as possible. Exactly. Um, well, in terms of like, her being on the threshold, I think yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. I should have been clear about that. Right. She's already broken the law, but she's not actually next to the king yet. Right. She's already taken that faithful uh, step into where into the forbidden area, and yet there's still one more step to take to actually talk to the king. Uh, right. That's absolutely. That's true. But in terms of like, the plans being different, her plans versus Mordecai's plan, I mean, on some level they are kind of the same, just her plans go out longer, right? Like, <laughs> um, not the same as Jews, but having a party or whatever, right? So, 
not, not, I don't want to pursue it right now, but one question I have to ask is whether she actually, if she has a plan that's very different. She doesn't go in and plead ever, right. uh, but her plan might not work. At the end, in Pericles, she winds up pleading. Uh, what her plan winds up doing is actually succeeding in only one thing, which is killing, killing Hamath. She succeeds in that without ever pleading, simply by regally inviting people to parties and pointing figures. The next chapter, she's like, oh, but my people are still going to die. Uh, at that point, she actually does adopt something of what Mordecai said, and she pleads for her people. Um, so, uh, th- at this point, her plan seems to be very different, but you still have to watch her own, uh, her own actions unfold. Um, so, at, at that point, she reveals that she's just uh, her Jewish identity? At this point? At this point? In no. five? No, not yet. No, not yet. No. She just says, when she's called in, all she says is, I want you to come to the party. I've made a piece. Uh, yes. Besides of her frustration, perhaps with Mordecai's plan, and, and she's seeing a different plan would be more uh, successful. Did she show frustration that he might be the cause of all of this? Uh, first of all, I don't know if he knows anything about it. Um, it, it at least in what we're told, he told her uh, that's not mentioned. Um, and uh, as you said, you know, Mordecai himself doesn't seem to ever regret it. Uh, well, next week, next week we'll see that uh, some of the earliest readers of Esther. Uh, thought that he should, uh, that he should regret it. Uh, so we'll see next week um, the Greek translation of Esther, which is from uh, Second Temple times, and it puts into Mordecai's mouth an apology. Uh, so so you know, already early readers were already like, wait a second, Mordecai should be feeling bad about this. But um, but but in the Hebrew text, he doesn't regret it. She doesn't say anything about it. No no one mentions it again. The fact that it's actually all Mordecai's doing that Haman decided to kill all the Jews. Uh, on purpose. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to it next week. Come back to it next week. Uh, I want to I end with two points. One is a midrash, which is, a, I think, a pretty well-known midrash, uh, which is sort of mysterious on its own terms, um, but might actually be trying to capture something relevant to us. Uh, and second is to come back to the question of, of gender. So let's start with the midrash. So there's a famous midrash. It's a midrash in the Gemara, in Sakhon uh, Megillah, that uh, Mordecai was not actually raising Esther as a daughter, but rather, what was their relationship? Uh, was that they were married. They were married. Um, now that creates that is such a strange thing to say. Uh, it creates all sorts of problems. All sorts of uh, it doesn't solve anything. Uh, it just makes the story borderline, borderline uh, incomprehensible. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of problems. Uh, one is what's the, what? Tell me, tell me. What are the problems that are? What? They a, a woman can't be married to two men. Right, right. Uh, that's really true. We're going to come back to that in one second. Uh, no, no, they refer to as a mixed couple. Yeah, only virgins. Only beautiful virgins are invited to this contest. Right? Uh, a beautiful virgin. So, so this midrash is a very, it's a very strange thing to say. Right? The question is, why would anyone say this? So, admittedly, there's some, something about the bot, buy it. Okay, fine. But, but it's a really weird thing uh, to say. Um, that uh, they were actually married. It really creates some serious problems with the story, and it doesn't seem to solve anything. Uh, normally, Midrashim you know, are created to solve a problem, to explain something, uh, but here it doesn't seem to do anything. So, uh, so what is the Midrashim? So, some people have uh, suggested that it's actually not trying to do anything, it's really just there for some entertainment value. Um, but, uh, but I think there's actually something, at least possibly, something very, very deep that the Midrash is trying to, to draw our attention to. Because according to the Midrash, uh, but that actually goes further. It doesn't just say that she was married to Mordecai, but was then married to Achishverosh. That would be bad, but okay. Uh, 
But right. But uh, the next line of the Gemara actually goes further and says that Esther would sleep with the king, go to the mikvah, and then sleep with Mordecai. Mikvah, the king. Now, first of all, going to the mikvah doesn't help. <laughs> um, it's not like adultery is okay as long as you go to the mikvah in the meantime. Uh, so the mikvah is sort of a, an odd, an odd detail. Tovelat yoshevet kachikosh amornachai. Tovelat yoshevet kachikosh amornachai. But but more than that, this midrash is doing something really. Like, what's what's going on here? So I suggest that what the midrash is doing is actually trying to dramatize the real tension in the book. What is the real tension in the book? Tension is, to whom is Esther more loyal? Now, we might have said that as sort of national identities. Is she mostly loyal to the Jews or mostly loyal to the Persians? Uh, the Midrash says, let's concretize it. She has two male authority figures in her life. To whom is she most loyal? Her loyalties are equal. She's married to Mordecai. She's married to Ahasuerus. When it comes down to it, what's she going to do? So for a while, five years, she's able to keep dual loyalties, the Midrash seems to imply. No, she goes back and forth. She's able to flip back and forth. But, but there's a time, right now, in chapter of there's a time when she has to make a decision. Now, even more uh, brilliantly, the Midrash says, what decision does she make? Who does she actually retain her loyalty to? And who does she break from? So. She comes up with plants and fans. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Know. But between the two, between the two figures, these two no, holes no. on her, who is she? Well, in the grand scheme of things, it's mortified, but the result is that she is married to exclusively Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She stays loyal to Mordecai by severing her relationship with Mordecai and going into Achashverosh. The Midrash explains that that once she willingly slept with Achashverosh in chapter five, she was no longer allowed to sleep with with Mordecai. That seems to be a way of saying. In order to retain her loyalty to Mordecai, she had to cut off her relationship with Mordecai and explicitly and overtly dress herself up as loyal to the king, as a Persian queen. Or, to put it a little differently, uh, by being as Persian as possible, she was able to be in a position to actually do something, do something for the Jews. Uh, so this is, a, if that's what the Midrash is, is doing, uh, it's really a, a, a very, very uh, insightful way of capturing the tension in her identity and capturing the paradox and the resolution of that, of that tension. So in order to stay loyal to Mordecai, she has to cast a lot in with Ahasuerus. And that's going to keep us through the end of the book. At the end of the book, who lives happily ever after? The Jews. Where does Esther live happily ever after? In the palace, as the queen, married to the king. So in this happily ever after, intermarried. This is, a, this is an oddly uh, Jewish book. Is there any like sense of that, or does he just sort of shrug his shoulders and say, "Oh, look, you have this other people"? Yeah, I mean, in the book, he it doesn't it react negatively to that. Um, so, seems like the book doesn't think it's, it's a real problem. Which goes back to the other point. Yeah, they're not going to be so worried about the about anti-Semitism. It's not so much anti-Semitism. There's there's an emphasis on Persian of being loyal to the Persians. Any anything that's going to in the way of that is going to be a problem. Jewish identity would be a problem if that means that you're not loyal to the Persians, but so would Aramean identity or anything else. Um, all right, but let's end with one. But she has a very good point, my friend. <laughs> Who? <No>. Oh. <laughs> hey, man. He said, yeah. well, when she severed herself from Mordecai, I mean, he'd give her a gad or. 
Okay. No, he didn't give her a gift. So you're saying he's a, she's an adulteress for life. So she is adulteress then. So, that's so again, I don't think the midrash means this literally. So I'm not, I'm not all that worried about Esther's fate in hell or anything. Um, but, uh, but you're right. That's exactly right. The way the midrash tells the story, she has cast her lot in with Achashverosh, which means she's willingly, legalistically speaking, legally committing adultery, and therefore she's forbidden to her husband. Uh, but again, the midrash doesn't mean it literally. It's true. I mean, the midrash doesn't really think that Esther is is uh, sleeping with both men. Uh, you know, alternate nights or something. No. Uh, there's clearly something else that the Midrash is trying to do, which is, I think, to dramatize the, the conflicted identity that she has. Now, uh, do you think that Esther would take in, you know, she was probably how like, a little girl, say, Ha-Hama, or Esther, no lie, which would, what would Haman, Haman ever think of going to a meal, a feast that she prepared if he knew that she was Jewish? Right, I mean, right, I mean he, she had to set up the whole thing that people right. wouldn't know. Right. All right, so I want to end with one, one last point for tonight. Um, this, is, uh, this is actually what was supposed to be the end of last week, but all right, we're, <laughs> we're catching up. Uh, and that's to go back to the point about, about gender. Um, because it does seem likely that the book is, saying some, is using gender in a very conscious way. Um, there's, a, there's a male figure and a female figure. We've now explored these identity politics of each of them uh, through the period in the book where they're navigating this. The male figure takes a very um, dramatic, emphatic course of action. Uh, he says, I tried to sort of be quietly Jewish and yet loyal to the Persians, but when it came down to it, when I had to decide, it's almost militantly Jewish. Damn the Persians, I'm going to be with the Jews. Sackcloth, I don't care what's going to happen, I don't care what the consequences are, I have a plan, I'm going to rush into, I'm going to get someone to rush into the palace, I'm going to flee, and it's going to all work out well. Esther, Esther takes a very different tact. Esther says, We've got to constantly, constantly nuance this. In order to save the Jews, I have to be as Persian as possible. A much more intricately wrought uh, sense of identity. Now, it's interesting that in Bayatshini, during the time of the Second Temple, there's a, a bunch of stories that are circulating with female heroes, or heroines, uh, who saved the Jewish people. Uh, Esther is certainly a key, key example. Uh, the only other one I'll mention right now is Judith. Um, whose book is not in the Hebrew Bible, not in Tanakh, but is in the Apocrypha, and somehow got famous uh, through Hanukkah. Um, Judith, the woman who cuts off the head of Holofernes and saves the Jews from some enemy that no one could quite identify, because the story turned out to be fictional anyway. Um, but, but what is it? This is a, a slightly different, but still distinctively female version of how to save the Jews. How does Judith wind up saving the Jews? So, similar to Esther in some ways, different from Esther in other ways. You tell me, why, how is, I don't know if you remember the story. Um, so she uses her sexuality to get into the inner sanctum of the enemy. Right? So of course in Esther, she's actually married to him. Uh, in Judith, she's actually very, very careful to say she didn't sleep with him, but, but the whole ploy to get into his tent alone was that she was willing to. Uh, so using the sexuality to get into the inside. Uh, and then there's a big difference. So what did Esther do, what did Judith do? Or what did Judith do to Esther? Something seems I would ever do. Yeah, she picks up a sword. Uh, that's something that Esther never does. Esther sort of uh, always retains her um, totally trade in uh, um, stereotypes. Uh, always retains her female identity. Uh, never picks up a sword. Right? Judith uses her femininity in order to get into a position where she can pick up a sword and cut off the enemy's head. Uh, Esther uh, constantly is able to, oh, for, for the rest of the story, uh, keeps her power by staying the, king, the queen of Persia. 
by, uh, by using that, that identity. Um, it's probably not an accident that uh, in Thyatini times, when all the Jews are essentially powerless, uh, there are more stories about female heroes. Again, I'm totally trading stereotypes, not because uh, they're true, but because it seems plausible that this is the way that Jews in Bayacheni would have thought about the uh, gender issues uh, in their society. If you want to talk about heroes who are going to openly challenge the, uh, the empire, who are going to pick up a sword and fight the empire, well, that's a male hero. So who does that in Second Temple times? Think of a story. Uh, pick up swords and fight. The Maccabees. Yeah, perfect. Right? That's sort of like on one end of the, of the spectrum. Right? And what, what happens if you die when you're doing that? What's the, then you die. Uh, that's, part of the, that's part of the price you pay for fighting against the evil empires. Uh, some people might die. People do die in the books of Maccabees. And that's just what happens. Um, the, uh, the polar opposite, uh, so that's sort of a, again, totally stereotypical, but that's a, a masculine hero. The opposite would be a feminine hero. Uh, someone like Esther. Someone like Esther who never, never picks up any weapon whatsoever, but always uses her, her charm, her uh, behind-the-scenes, uh, to use a terrible word, uh, manipulative uh, capabilities, uh, to, to get things to work the way that they need to work. Now, what's the political lesson here um, for the Jews? Because, again, here's the key point that's going to sort of burst the uh, gender stereotypes. Uh, who's representing the Jews? Or who are the Jews aligned with in these stories? Because who's standing in for the Jewish people? Esther is the Jewish people. Right? So in other words, to all, for the Jewish male author of the book, I assume, and the Jewish mostly male audience of the book, they're supposed to identify with the female hero. So it's not to say women do this, men do this. It's actually to say all Jews now have to act like sort of a stereotypical female. What does that mean? What does it mean to act like a stereotypical female? How are you going to beat the empire? How are you going to survive in the empire? You don't have to fight. No, you don't have to fight. If you fight, what happens? You die. And if you die, it's all over. What's the point? You have to have subtlety. You have to be very shrewd, sophisticated. Right? These, are, these are good things. But for the Jews in Second Temple times, these are not just good qualities in general. These are necessary qualities for survival. Here's the basic political lesson of the Book of Esther. There might be, for totally irrational reasons, really high-placed people who hate the Jews. Haman might, for absolutely no good reason, want to kill all the Jews. There's only one way to beat Haman. What's the only way to beat Haman? He's really high-placed. He's Mishnah Lamela. How can you possibly beat Haman? One way. To have someone even farther on the inside who's actually on your side. You're talking about a super agent. It's actually a good... Uh, a good metaphor, but it can't just be any sleeper agent. It's got to be someone on the inner sanctum of the power. Right? Right. In order to beat Haman, who's so powerful, the only way to do it, you're not going to do it if you, if you have swords. Because you know what happens if you pick up a sword? Haman controls the entire army. What, what are you going to do? You're going to have you know, 30,000 people, and you're going to say, we're, we're fighting against the Persian army. The Persian army is going to say, that's very cute. And then you're all dead, and now what happens to Jewish history? Uh, the only way to, to beat Haman is to be able to outmaneuver him. Right. For that, for that, the author here has chosen to stand in for all the Jewish people. Say, I don't want the, I don't want Yehuda Maccabee as my as my hero, because Yehuda Maccabee is, for the, from the perspective of the author here, on a suicidal mission. Um, what I need in that hero here is a queen who knows how to use all of her, all of her, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, all of her feminine qualities 
in order to outmaneuver and manipulate uh, Haman. But again, that's not because that's what women do. The lesson of the book is Jews, as a minority in a big empire, have to learn to do this. This is the way we have to live to survive. Uh, now, as you can imagine, um, what, we'll th- what we'll turn to next week is that already uh, in the earliest readers that we know of of the book, there was a lot of discomfort with the book. Because a lot of what we've just said now, and a lot of other things that we uh, haven't even mentioned, uh, would have provoked uh, some negative reactions on the part of other Jews. The Hashemonim, for example, it's hard to imagine liking the book of Esther. It's terrible. It preaches intermarriage, hidden intermarriage. Uh, it preaches uh, passivity, hate passivity. Preaches giving to the empire, the worst thing in the world. Uh, so the Hashemonim would have hated the book of Esther. Uh, and what we'll see starting, uh, starting the next couple of weeks are some of the early reactions to Esther, which are going to actually be pretty harshly negative. Uh, and then we'll, we'll try to explore how Chazal and rabbinic literature, how they read Esther in a way to sort of co-opt it and bring it back into a, sort of a normative uh, biblical perspective. So that's for the next couple of weeks. Uh, thank you for your time today. Two more weeks? Two more weeks, right? Okay. <laughs> yes, two more weeks. All right, thanks for your patience.